1: Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed?
0: Can I make my side softer?
1: Can I make my side firmer whenever I want? Can, Can we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that, cools up to eight times faster, and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers
0: report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com.
1: Climate change and melting glaciers are synonymous at this point when the topic is discussed and usually addresses the future impacts of melting ice and its effects on coastal communities. But how do we determine what those impacts are and when they could occur? Joining us today is Dr. Alex Robel, a researcher who helps to develop mathematical models that provide this information, and he's here to give us some insight on how it all happens. Welcome, Dr. Robel. Thank you. Glad to be here you know, there's a question. I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast, but out of the gate, I mean, it's just a tradition now. I typically will ask the guests, how did you become a weather geek? But in your case, I'm going to ask, how did you become a climate geek or a glacier geek?
0: Um, actually, so it's an interesting story and, and kind of a weird path for me to get here um, because I was, I would say kind of more of a weather geek before I was a climate or glacier geek. So Um, I, I grew up in Miami, Florida and, um, had a lot of, uh, childhood kind of formative childhood experiences with extreme weather, with hurricanes. Um, I, you know, lived in Miami during probably the most active period of North Atlantic hurricane activity in, you know, sort of recent history, um, and lived through at a young age, Hurricane Andrew, and then, uh, was finishing high school during the the 2004, 2005 seasons that were were devastating for Florida. Um, And so I I had a lot of kind of formative experiences with the impact that the natural world has on uh, people and on society and in particular on coastal communities. Um, And so when I went off to college, um, so I I did my undergraduate degree on scholarship at at Duke University, I, I knew that I was really interested in physics and math. Those are things that I had always been interested in. Um, but I, I had always had a, like a childhood, long, lifelong fascination with, with weather and earth sciences. Um, and I, I had had an after-school internship, actually, at, at NOAA AOML um, when, when I uh, was in high school um, that I got through one of my science teachers. Um, and so I, I had already had some experience with earth science. And so as an undergrad, I, I uh, double majored in, in physics and earth sciences. Um, and uh, did research kind of across tropical meteorology and oceanography. Um, and I thought that I was going to go on to grad school to study sort of hurricane climate interactions. That's what I had done research on as an undergrad. Um, and when I got to sort of the decision point, um, I decided to go work with someone, uh, Elliot Sieperman, who's a professor at Harvard, um, where I liked the way that he did science and the way that he thought about problems, which is sort of how can we build simple mathematical models to understand kind of complex systems uh, within within nature, um, and 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 he worked he used those tools to understand a variety of problems across climate science. Um, and so you know one of the problems he worked on was sort of tropical meteorology, tropical dynamics. Uh, but when I started uh, my first year, my first week, um, he sort of sat down with me and he's like, I'm really interested in this problem about um, glaciers, in particular, these um, very large glaciers in Antarctica um, called ice streams, uh, which are very fast flowing glaciers that some of them are like the size of Florida. Um, they're, they're, you know, quite important conduits of ice flow uh, from the interior of ice sheets towards the ocean. And in particular, um, you know, we were interested in understanding um, how their flow changed over time. Um, And so I I started there, um, and it really wasn't until later, um, I would say, you know, after I'd been working uh, on ice sheet dynamics um, for a while, that I think the connection and the work that I was doing and sort of thinking about predictions of ice sheet change and the sea level rise that comes from it um, really came full circle to kind of my upbringing in Miami, Florida, which, um, you know, as I'm sure many people are aware is, um, a city and a region, um, that is incredibly vulnerable to sea level rise. Um, you know, oftentimes Miami gets talked about in almost existential terms in terms of its future, um, under, you know, the kinds of sea level projections that we think about a lot in my group. Um, and so I really know firsthand the importance of developing good projections or predictions of things like sea level rise because coastal communities need that information and they need, you know, constrained information. They need a sort of a small range in order to be able to make well-founded decisions about their future, right? About how tall do you build a building or even do you even develop in this whole part of the city, right? Is it a good idea to develop on this low-lying land? You know, what is the likelihood that it'll be flooded in the future? These are all very important questions and they're very much tied into these sort of seminal and basic earth science questions um, that we are trying to answer about basically how ice sheets work. And so that's the focus of the work that I do and the work that we do here in my group at Georgia Tech. Yeah,
1: and by the way, Uh, this is the point where I do want to give some background on Dr. Robel. Uh, He's an assistant professor in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology, better known to us around here in these parts as Georgia Tech. Uh, Alex is a leading expert in the fields of climate change and glaciology, and is the researcher who combines physics, applied math, and earth and ocean sciences uh, to understand changes to our ice sheets and glaciers and so forth. And he, as you heard, he he mentioned, he's also developing mathematical models to help uh, provide insight into fast ice, melting, fast oceans ri- rise and so forth. Things that we're going to get all into in this podcast. It's really fascinating. And one thing that I picked up on, which is really, uh, I want to kind of poke his um, brain about this a little bit more. I really liked his tie-in back to his home community. You might say, whoa, Miami? ice sheets, that doesn't match, but they're certainly connected. And I, I really understand and appreciate the sort of personal perspective on how his research actually can tie into his, his life, his, his family, his community, and so forth. But before we go there, let's geek out on some basic terminology for the listeners. Um, talk about the difference between what glaciers are, sea ice, and ice sheets, because I think that people probably have heard all of those terms, but maybe don't know the specific differences.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, this is actually usually the exact the exact distinction that I always start on when I when I give public talks. So I, I think it is it is great to get into it. Um, so the, the main distinction that we think about in sort of cryospheric sciences, which is basically just the science of all the, the frozen things on Earth. Um, one of the main distinctions that we think about is the difference between sea ice and glaciers or sort of generally what we call land ice so you can kind of tell from the names that the main difference between sea ice and land ice is that sea ice is ice that is floating on top of the ocean um, and that forms by freezing of water sort of at the top of the ocean so when it gets cold um, either sort of in the arctic or in the antarctic in the winter time um, the water, uh, at the surface of the ocean that's in contact with the atmosphere, um, gets below freezing and, and it turns into sea ice. It freezes into sea ice. And this sea ice is typically of the thickness of order, sort of, uh, of feet, a few feet maybe at, at the largest, or, you know, 10 feet thick at the largest. Um, uh, I'm, I'm all, I'm going to do this in, in sort of imperial units since, since I, I know this is. Baby. Yeah, absolutely. That's fine. Yeah. Um, so, and then land ice is the ice that forms through um, snowfall over land areas like uh, the the land underneath the Antarctic ice sheet or the island of Greenland, or just in sort of northern areas or mountainous areas that are cold. um, In places where you basically have more snow falling Then um, there is melting um, every year, Um, you will eventually over long periods of time have a buildup of snow. And when that snow um, uh, sits on top of sort of older snow, it compacts it down. And slowly over time, that snow transforms into what we think of as glacier ice. Um, So the main difference is that uh, land ice, which is sort of glaciers and ice sheets, which are also terms that are used interchangeably, is ice that is starts by sitting on land, and it can be anywhere from sort of hundreds to thousands of and even maybe even a few miles thick, right? So we're, we're talking about very, very thick ice compared to sea ice, and the important distinction from the perspective of thinking about sea level rise is that sea ice, because it starts by floating on the ocean, global sea level is already adjusted to it, right? So, you know, sort of like Archimedes' principle tells us that, you know, when you have something floating in the water, the water that is displaced, you know, it it will be displaced somewhere else. And so the the sea level that we experience in coastal communities, right, that is already sort of taking into account the sea ice that is forming and melting on a year-to-year basis and over the last few decades has been increasingly melting, particularly in the Arctic. But land ice starts out on land, so it is not compensated uh, by sea level yet. So when that land ice, uh, when those glaciers and ice sheets, when they melt or when they flow into the ocean and break off as icebergs or just melt directly into the ocean, that is a sort of new contribution to global sea level. And so that is one of the factors that causes sea level to go up. Uh,
1: yeah. 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 And I think that's, you know, the, the, the Archimedes principle. I mean, I've often heard people talk about ice cubes in a glass and you've got ice in a glass and then maybe yeah. you add another ice cube and then the level goes yeah. up in the sense. Um, really interesting discussion. One of the things that we know, and I think you would agree with this climate change is altering sea ice, I mean, I've seen data from NASA that show these downward trends and sort of sea ice in the Arctic region. Uh, I know we've seen some retreat in certain glaciers. Uh, But, and then here's the but, and I'm, I'm bringing this up for a reason. I've also seen this sort of discussion out there, particularly among some that may be a bit denialists or skeptical on climate change that sort of convolute the argument by saying, but yeah, you know, parts of the ice sheets in Antarctica gain snow. And you just talked about this idea that places where you have sort of a net gain in snowfall and land can lead to compaction and ice and glaciers and so forth. So how do you reconcile the narrative about how climate change is affecting cryospheric systems. I mean, what's your sort of public message there? Because it can be, if you're not looking at the nuance of this, it can be counterintuitive to people at times.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, um, you know, I think, yeah, the, the sort of messages and the the, the kind of um, news discussions about it that are, that are out there can often be very confusing. Um, I would say the way that we think about it, um, uh, in the sea level and, and cryosphere community is that there's kind of two sides of what we call the budget of global sea level, right? There are the sources of fresh water or of, of sea level, of, of volume of the ocean that contribute to sea level, and we can measure those things um, sort of on their own. And then there's the end product, right, which is, is global sea level, right, is where is the surface of the ocean relative to the land surface, what we call relative sea level, so you could measure those two things independently, right? We measure sea level uh, through a combination of methods. We've had tide gauges for over a century, and actually in many places much longer than that, uh, which are just measuring the local surface of the ocean and how that's changing over time. Um, we also, for the last 40 or so years, have had really great satellites which measure the surface of the ocean everywhere um, and and tell us how that's changing, um, and all of those measurements. Um, uh, methods tell us the same story, right? which is that sea level globally has been increasing on average for the last 100 years. and in the last thirty or so years, the rate of that sea level rise has accelerated, right? So those are pretty two, I would say pretty unequivocal facts that have come out of the science um, in our field in the last fifty years. So that's on the sort of sea level side. that's what we would call kind of the top-down budget, what what we're seeing um, just from the end product of, of, of sea level, global sea levels. And, and, you know, that is to say like, the ocean does not act like a bathtub. It doesn't go up the same everywhere. So when I talk about global average sea level, I'm talking about a statistical average quantity. In some places, sea level, local sea level, local relative sea level is actually going up by two to three times faster than global average sea level. And actually here in the United States, so the United States as a whole, in the United States as a whole, sea level is going up faster than it is globally. And particularly here in the Southeast and on the East Coast, we have sea level that is going up um, in some places two to three times faster than it is globally, among the fastest rates of sea level rise in the world. And that's because there's a number of local processes that also contribute to the the local sea level. that that are sort of acting on top of this sort of large scale processes of glaciers and ice sheets melting, and also what we call thermal expansion of the ocean, right? So when seawater gets warmer, uh, it takes up more space, it occupies more volume, it's less dense. Um, and so that also causes sea level rise. Below, um, Sorry, you're ask No, but- no, I,
1: I was gonna say I, I wanted to make that point. But I, I wanted to also ask about whether some of these places in the coastal area are also that is, is to a part of the sort of rapid rise in parts of the US as well? Yes,
0: yes. So uh, for example, here on the, I would say, when we're thinking about the eastern part of the United States, on the east coast, on the Atlantic coast, um, one of the bigger factors is sort of oceanographic changes, right? So the local level, the local sea level is partly um, determined by um, Uh, uh, ocean currents um, that might exist sort of in the region. And there have been some changes to the Gulf Stream um, over the last few decades that mean that actually the mid-Atlantic states have seen uh, what we call a sea level rise hotspot. So sea level has been rising about twice as fast in the sort of uh, Virginia to um, Delaware kind of uh, sector as it is in uh, South Florida or further up the Atlantic coast. Um, A separate issue from that um, is the subsidence that you just talked about, and that's actually a much more striking um, sort of generator of relative sea level rise, right? So ultimately, um, places where the land surface is sinking, um, if you are living in that area or living on that land, you will see that land surface sinking as sea level rise because your position relative to the level of the you know the surface of the water is changing, regardless of whether it's because the absolute wa- level of the water is going up or because your your uh, observer position is going down, right? And in particular, in the Gulf Coast of the United States, um, around uh, Louisiana in particular, and the neighboring states, um, there are areas with very rapid. Um, land subsidence uh, due to and uh, sort of a number of different human activities, and so in those places you see rates of sea level rise that are like triple the global average, and are you know seeing you know really really rapid sea level rise. In other parts of the world, uh, it's actually even more um, striking than that. So in Southeast Asia, um, in particular, in like Indonesia um, and and the Philippines, there's. A subsidence that's occurring 10 times faster than the rate of sea level rise um, due to groundwater extraction, which causes sort of um, soil to compact and then subside. Um, and so in those places, like they're seeing rates of sea level rise of several centimeters per year, which you know doesn't sound like a lot, but when you take it over 20 or 30 years, they're seeing several feet of sea level rise over just a few decades, which, you know, is is really, really, really fast um, and hard to adapt to. Um, So, um, you know, so, so it's a complicated process, but we have very, very good measurements of it. And we know unequivocally that sea level globally is rising. And it is because of the melting of glaciers and the expansion of seawater. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car.
1: Podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking to my colleague about 65 miles down the road at Georgia Tech, Dr. Alex Robel, talking about glacier sea ice cryosphere climate change, uh, really important topic and one that you might think is removed and remote from you because early on in the discussions of climate change, I think the framing of these changes in the Arctic and in the cryosphere were framed about polar bears and various things, but I think Dr. Robel's work sort of makes the connections, the sea level rise, uh, ecosystems, uh, even, you know, from my lens, Arctic amplification, as it's been shown to affect the jet stream patterns and weather and climate around the world as well. And by the way, when I say Arctic amplification, that's this idea that the warming, and we know this is the case, has been more extreme at higher latitudes, particularly in the northern hemisphere. And so the question I really want to sort of get at now uh, with Alex is, we know that there are feedbacks, you know, these ice albedo feedbacks, and I, I want to get your one hundred and one on what the ice albedo feedback is. But this idea of ice albedo feedbacks, the rate of change of sea level rise and 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 ice, sea ice, are those rates beyond what we've expected and is the ice albedo feedback playing a role. So I guess the first question is explain to our listeners what the ice albedo feedback is, then I want to get your your discussion thoughts on what the relative trends are compared to what we expected maybe 20, 30 years ago.
0: Sure, yeah. So um, so the ice albedo feedback, so albedo is um, essentially describing the color of the surface of the earth, right? So uh, darker surfaces absorb more radiation from the sun, um, or absorb it more efficiently, um, and layer surfaces um, absorb less and reflect more back to space. Right? So um, ice sheets um, are uh, generally pretty light colored surfaces, they're they're white, and in particular, if there's fresh snow that um, persists on the surface, they're incredibly reflective. Um, and so this is a great way to keep their surfaces cool. Um, but they're is a point at which um, various factors can start to darken the surface of the ice sheet So, uh, or, or sea ice. Um, so you know, one obvious one is, um, as you get closer to the melting point um, with, with surface temperatures, you're going to start creating meltwater on the surface. And that meltwater looks blue instead of white. Um, and so those melt ponds that form on the surface of ice sheets absorb more solar radiation and will basically warm up the surface of the ice sheet faster than, um, than they would have otherwise. For the, so for the same ch- change, you know, a small change in temperature, you get kind of more warming of the surface and more melting of the ice, right? So that's this ice albedo feedback, or that contributes to this ice albedo feedback of uh, causing more melting or faster melting as you get closer to the melting temperature. Another factor that we've seen actually that is uh, starting to be very important in um, Greenland and in uh, mountain glaciers in the Northern Hemisphere is actually the deposition of uh, soot, or sort of dark particles, aerosol, aerosol particles from the atmosphere onto the surface, right? So industrial activities uh, produce all kinds of fine particulate matter, and that gets lofted into the atmosphere and transported over long distances. Uh, and then when it comes back down to the surface, it gets deposited on you know wherever the land surface is. And if that happens to be on an ice sheet, um then you can have a significant change in the albedo of the ice sheet um, due to the presence of these uh, darker um, aerosol particles Um, and so this has been a factor in the increasing rate of surface melt uh, from the greenland ice sheet um, over the last several decades Um, and then as to your other question about is it faster than than we expected Uh, I think the answer to that question probably really depends on who you ask within the community uh, because it really depends on uh, sort of what you think we expected in the past. You know, there there was a a kind of wide range of views about how fast we could expect glaciers and ice sheets to change when the climate changed, you know, maybe 30 years ago or even 50 years ago when glaciology was really just getting started as a modern scientific discipline. there were there was definitely some kernels of ideas so the old idea was that like antarctica was stable right that it was kind of a geological feature and it's been around for 30 million years and it it, there was no way it was going to change very much i would say that was the consensus view um, when the climate change it wouldn't change very quickly Um, and that idea really started changing i would say in the like late 60s when um i would say two things Happen. One is that we started to understand the dynamics of ice flow a lot better, and how ice flow could speed up under certain circumstances when forced by a change in climate. Um, so that was, uh, I would say, a a, a uh, an innovation on the sort of theoretical side of glaciology, the side side that I live in most of most of the time in my work. And then the other big innovation was that we started to get. Um, records, better records, what we call, you know, paleo proxy records of past ice sheet changes. So we started to get a better picture of how ice sheets have changed in the past when global climate has been a little bit warmer. So during past warm periods like the the last interglacial, which was sort of the last period between ice ages, uh, about 100,000 years ago, um, and then a uh, uh, another period called the Pliocene warm period, which was about 3 million years ago when temperatures were a few degrees above kind of what they were um, in the early 20th century. Um, We were able to get records um, by looking at sort of geology and mud from the bottom of the ocean and other things um, that showed that the uh, Antarctic ice sheet and the Greenland ice sheet um, were smaller during those warm periods. Now, in the sort of 50 or so years since we started to get a better understanding of of these these records, these paleo records of, of ice sheet size, um, there's been quite a lot of debate, and I, I would say there's definitely not still not consensus over exactly how much smaller the ice sheets were. Um, there's still quite a large range over um, the amount of sea level rise that we have seen in the past, or that we Earth experienced in the past during past warm periods. um, And that can range anywhere from like a meter to actually many tens of meters. Um, So so quite a large range. Um, But now we've started to incorporate those. So in just the last, I would say 10 or 20 years, started to incorporate those paleo constraints into the models that we use, right? So the idea is, we have computational models and this is a lot of the work that we do in my group is developing these computational models and then using them to make projections for how much will the antarctic ice sheet and the greenland ice sheet shrink under future climate change and how much will that contribute to sea level rise Um, the problem is there's a lot of things that we don't understand (laughs) about how ice sheets work Um, and so uh, what we need are parameters what we call parameters in those models Um, basically ways of representing physical processes mathematically. And in order to say what those parameters are, we need sort of past examples of how ice sheets have changed in response to climate change. Um, And so we're starting to better constrain those models. Um, But generally, the trend over the last several decades has been that um, our sort of conception for the upper range of what is possible in terms of the speed at which ice sheets melt in response to climate change has been trending upward um, and so our projections of future sea level rise have sort of been going upward um, with that um, and so in terms of you know is it higher than we expected um i think probably the answer is yes in the sort of long view of glaciology um but, um, you know, we are, I would say, still kind of in the early days of trying to really understand in detail how ice sheets work and to develop good mathematical and computational in the context of sea of level projections.
1: on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Alex Robel from Georgia Tech or the Georgia Institute of Technology. And, you know, in this last segment, a couple of questions I want to kind of get to, just things that I hear, things not just as a scientist, but just with my ear to the ground as a, as a, as a person that's engaged in science attentive or from time to time has to go to D.C. and talk to important people about these topics. One, and you mentioned that you hit upon some of this, and we know that anthropogenic climate change is certainly in the mix, but you also mentioned some things that would be considered natural variability. And we as climate scientists know that our climate varies naturally and always has, uh, because people occasionally tell us that or remind us that as, as if we forgot, um, but we know it. that's the case. So how do you reconcile sort of the sort of natural variability associated with things like ENSO cycles and so forth, or uh, you mentioned sort of the long-term changes and ice ages, which are driven by the Milankovitch cycles, these changes in the earth's tilt and precession and orbit shape around the sun and so forth. How do you reconcile the sort of natural variability versus the anthropogenic changes that are going on in, in these cryospheric regions?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I I think, um, and and actually we think about a lot about this exact question in my group is about the role of climate variability in in driving ice sheet change. And I I would say there's sort of two parts of that, and it depends on the time scale that you're, you're asking about. For really long time scales, for ice, you know, glacial cycles, sort of hundred thousand year, many tens of thousands of year changes, right, which have driven large changes in the past in Earth's history, have driven large changes in ice sheets, right? Those large changes in ice sheets unfolded over very long time scales and they were responding to changes in you know Earth's tilt and wobble and, and et cetera, which were occurring on long time scales, tens of thousands of years time scale. So the main difference between and even those past warm periods like the Pliocene warm period, right those became warm over long time scales compared to what we are currently observing are the changes that humans are causing in Earth's climate, right? So the rate of change that ice sheets and glaciers are experiencing in terms of, you know, atmospheric temperature, ocean temperature, these are much, much higher than these rates of change of temperature that have been experienced in the past, and that's a huge qualitative difference, right? The other question about short timescale climate variability, things like El Niño, uh, things like the North Atlantic Oscillation and, you know, which generate sort of year to year and decade to decade fluctuations in atmosphere and ocean temperatures, and the ice sheets experience this. This is actually a really interesting and important question. So I think there's there's two facts to sort of keep in mind when thinking about the role of climate variability um, in ice sheet change. One is that um, ice sheets are integrators, right? And so what that means is that um, ice sheets, generally change more slowly than the atmosphere, right? Which is the atmosphere over a glacier or an ice sheet, you know, is different from week to week, month to month, year to year. Whereas the ice sheets have the capacity to change and have the capacity to change quickly. But when we say quickly, we mean like on time scales of decades. Um, you know, that's that's fast for us, right? And so those changes that are unfolding over the course of sort of years to decades to centuries, those are integrating up all of the sort of, you know, uh, you know the, the quick fluctuations of the atmosphere, quick for, you know, the ice sheets um, and in the ocean as well, right? The ocean varies more slowly than the atmosphere because it has more what we call thermal inertia. Um, uh, but still, like the ocean temperature and currents that are being experienced by ice sheets that are, you know, at the boundary between the ocean and the ice sheets. Those are fluctuating on time scales of sort of months to years to decades, right? And then the ice sheet basically adds up all of these fluctuations, and it has a sort of single integrated response in one direction. So ultimately, you know, that variability is important to consider. Um, and like a lot of the work that my group has been focused on in the last few years is basically trying to build ice sheet models, computational ice sheet models, that naturally incorporate these fluctuations. So we're building um, uh, the sort of the first stochastic version of an ice sheet model, which means basically a model where we represent climate as like a noisy process. Um, and uh, we're trying to use that in order to develop a sort of better range for projections, right? So we don't exactly know what El Nino is going to be, you know, I mean, next year, really next year, even, but certainly 10 or 50 years from now, we're not gonna know the exact progression of El Nino. But what we want is we want a projection, and El Nino actually very much affects ice sheets, right? So so it it, it sees that and there's a sort of teleconnection between the tropical Pacific and the West Antarctic, it's actually very important um to sort of the year-to-year variations in, in melt in the Arctic in the in the Antarctic. Um, but what we wanna know is even though we don't know exactly you know, how El Nino is going to, you know, sort of fluctuate over the next 50 or 100 years, um, you know, far in advance, what we want to do is we want to sort of test our model with many different possible versions of how El Nino might fluctuate over the next 50 or 100 years. And so what we do, what's called an ensemble, which is basically we run our model many, many times, um, and we uh, sort of force it with many possible uh realism what we call realizations or kind of versions of how el nino and all the other variability that exists in the climate system might unfold and affect ice sheets and so at the end of that what we get is not one prediction for how the ice sheet will change but we get a whole range of predictions and what that allows us to do is sort of say things like um, there is an x percent probability that the antarctic contribution to sea level rise will be at least this much in this year
1: right could i jump in there because yeah. the, the the true weather geeks listening to this will recognize those ensembles because that's exactly how we do weather forecasting today yeah. um we do ensembles uh, we're looking at the ensembles coming from the gfs the european model right now to because there are storms hurricanes out in the uh, atlantic and what are the range of possibilities under slightly different initial conditions or slightly slightly different perturbations so um i i wanted to jump in there yeah but continue with what you were saying
0: Well, and that's i think that's a really good point because and i I will admit like the whole idea from this uh, of of doing this for ice sheet models it came from the fact that we have been now doing this in in numerical weather forecasting for decades right um stochastic uh weather forecasting or ensemble you know what we call perturbed initial condition weather ensemble um that you know they've been doing that we've been doing that for decades and it's been incredibly useful for sort of developing more robust projections um, or uh, predictions of, of weather. And, and more recently, um, it, it has been done with climate modeling. And in fact, actually, one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize in Physics last year, Klaus Hasselmann, his kind of main contribution that he's known for to uh, the field of climate physics. Um, Is the development of the first stochastic climate models, right? So these are ideas that sort of have long been used in uh, the weather forecasting community and in the climate modeling community, and they're just much more recent for ice sheet modeling. Um, You know, there's some historical reasons for why that is, um, but the sort of ultimate, you know, uh, sort of outcome of that is that, you know, I don't have to reinvent uh, sort of stochastic modeling. Uh, You know, my group doesn't have to. You know, we have borrowed a lot of ideas from weather forecasting and climate modeling in order to develop these stochastic ice sheet models. And ultimately, what it'll hopefully lead to, as it has in weather forecasting and climate modeling, is sort of better constraints on these future projections. Um, that are easier to make decisions about um, rather than just having like a single forecast that we don't know whether it's right or wrong.
1: What a, an amazing geek out. <laughs> this is what Weather Geeks is all about, except we're geeking out on the cryosphere and sea level rise. And really the last question, because we're short on time, because it's been such an amazing discussion. I want to circle back to the local and coastal communities. Because we know here in 2022, we're dealing with sunny day flooding uh, in coastal large coastal communities, salt water intrusion in places like South Florida, uh, storm surge riding this elevated sea level rise and hurricanes and so forth. So sort of put a bow on sort of your connection to the to the local coastal communities and, and why this research is important.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we can, uh, you know, talk all day, uh, and write proposals that, you know, talk about how we're doing such important work for, uh, you know, coastal communities and sea level is, is very important. And all those things are true. Um, but ultimately, unless we as scientists are engaged ourselves with local communities, we have no way of knowing whether the science that we are producing is usable by people, right? By by the people who we say, again, in our proposals and in our talks um, are the ones who are being affected by the things that we're studying, right? So this, I mean, so this idea of working together with coastal communities, um, it's often called co-production in science, but the idea is that, you know, unless we are on the ground and, and, you know, talking to people in local communities about what those concerns are, um, then it is easy for us to go off sort of in our own science directions. Um, and, you know, not necessarily do science that is, um, engaged with the ways in which the information, the outcomes from our science are, are being used in practice. Right. Um, and so, Um, I I think there's, I have a few points about that. One, which is that, so I say all that, but I think it is still important to do, you know, science for the sake of science. And uh, a lot of sort of things that ultimately became very important and usable by people started with things that were just kind of cool math problems or or something like that. Um, But I mean, for me personally, it is hard for me to motivate myself on a day-to-day basis to do the science that i'm doing if i'm just sort of living within my science land within my model land within my math land right and so part of the work that we do in my group is more sort of theory mathematical modeling and that is trying to pave the road for you know having better models down the road we're trying to you know just develop the equations that the models use which like we don't have a complete set of equations for Ice sheet dynamics and and how they're affected by climate. So that's important work to do, sort of for the long run. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's incredibly important, and for me, it's you know for to, to motivate myself to continue doing the science. It's important to also you know do work that is engaged with local communities. And so in recent years, that's meant engaging more with what we call practitioners, uh, people who work in regional planning departments, people who develop zoning codes for for coastal communities. Um, to try to figure out what information is practically actionable for them, right? Do they need a whole distribution of a a sea level projection or do they just need a single number, right? And what if, if it is a single number, what number is that, right? Nowadays, we often talk about the upper bound of sea level projections, right? Because communities wanna say, I wanna build high enough so that I don't have to worry about flooding within the sort of expected lifetime of a building, right, which might be 30 or 50 or 100 years. Um, and so, you know, maybe giving them a sort of upper bound number that says that sea level will almost certainly, there's only a 1% probability that sea level will rise higher than this, that is a number that they can then use to go and build things higher and, you know, make, make better decisions. And so it's translating kind of the 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 complicated ensemble projections that we make into sort of a way that is actually usable by folks and and really that only works if you are sort of talking to people in communities and 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 doing all that Um, the other thing i would say about that uh, about working you know with communities and working with practitioners and working with community groups is that oftentimes it leads you down sort of unexpected paths um in terms of you know you, you know, you're the center, your science is the center of your own world and you think it's the most important thing for everyone. Um, but when you actually go and start talking to communities, they're like, okay, that's great. But actually what we need is this, right? Um, and so an example of that, this is not a personal example, but something that I've been sort of tangentially involved in is um, we have a project um, that was developed here at Georgia Tech called the Smart Sea level Sensor Project. Um, Kim Shout Cobb. And-
1: Dr. Kim Cobb.
0: Yes, Kim Cobb, uh, who, who's now at Brown, and, and Russell Clark is a, an engineering professor here at Georgia Tech, um, developed low-cost, uh, essentially tide gauges, right? So um, sensors that use off-the-shelf components to measure local sea level. So historically, that was done with very expensive tide gauge setups, which are run, uh, installed and maintained by, by NOAA, right? And those can cost tens of thousands of dollars to do one. And that's the reason why, for example, in Georgia, um, for the entire last century, we had one tide gauge in the whole state um, at Fort Pulaski, um, in between Savannah um, and Tidy Island, um, and that is a great long-lived record. It goes back to the 1930s. You can clearly see sea level rise. If you go, you can go look all this information up on the NOAA um, uh, Tides and Currents website. It's it's fantastic, and I have my students do that and, and analyze that data. Um, but like, if you want to understand, for example, why one neighborhood in Savannah floods uh, during you know, uh, onshore wind events and another neighborhood doesn't flood, right? you need more localized information than that. And that's hard to do when every single sea level observation requires tens of thousands of dollars to install and you know, more to maintain over time. And so this project developed this low cost sensor, um, and then worked with local communities and local residents in the Savannah region, um, Chatham County, Georgia, in order to figure out where they needed to install this where they needed better information about flooding. So we went from a situation where we had one data point from one tide gauge in the whole state of Georgia to now there are over 60 sensors installed over the sort of savannah region Um, and this is actually the densest network of sea level observations in the world now and that all happened within like a five-year time scale obviously with a lot of hard work on the part of 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 kim and russell um, and the community groups that they were working with but that's an example of sort of community engaged science community engaged practice But one of the interesting things from that, one of the interesting takeaways that you know um, came from that is that they were doing these deployments, and then they were asking the community, like, well, what other kind of earth information do you need, right? Or or information about weather, or you know, uh, other observations. And actually, one of the sort of surprising things is that the community said sort of two other things. One is that. A lot of the flooding that occurs there isn't happening because of necessarily like sea level events, but just because of rainfall. And so having more high resolution rainfall observations um, using, you know, rain gauges, digital rain gauges that tied into the sort of uh, infrastructure for for these sea level sensors was one of the additions. But then the other one was actually air quality, right? So in many of these communities, which are sort of adjacent to industrial areas or just adjacent to highways or, you know, areas where pollution is being produced, Uh, They noticed that, you know, the air quality is worse here than it is in sort of better off uh, communities that, um, you know, are not adjacent to sources of pollution. So they wanted more information about air quality. So, for example, they could go to the EPA and say, you know, we need a better regulation of this industry near us um, because, you know, our air quality is not good. And now we have data to back that up. Right. And so even though, you know, Kim and Russell are not air quality people, right. They figured out, or, you know, they worked together with, you know, a lot of people who were involved in this project and they figured out like, okay, how can we add air quality sensors at a low cost to these, this existing infrastructure. And now we have air quality information at some of those locations as well. So it's, you know, doing community engaged practice, like oftentimes it leads you down these roads that you would not have expected in the first place because you're so kind of tunnel visioned on your own science. Um, But ultimately, you know, if you're willing to go down that road with the community, it leads you to places that, you know, will ultimately benefit, you know, both sides of, of, you know, who's involved, both the scientists and the community. Um, And I think that that's a really, you know, great aspect of doing science, you know, together with the communities who, who really need
1: it. Oh, wow, Dr. Alex Roble. That's amazing. Your discussion has been very comprehensive and I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast because I think we touched on some ground today that I think Weather Geeks listeners are certainly interested in, but I think it's just really at the forefront of quite a few of the climate science discussions as as it relates to cryospheric change, connections to sea level rise, and the so what for coastal communities. So I really appreciate what you do. And I'd also like to thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Great. Thank you so much, Marshall. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And always, as always, thank you for listening as well. And we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.